1: But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a a big group. We record everything, so there's no BSing, no lying, no faking it with us. (laughs) Did we hit the record button?
0: I forgot to hit the (laughs) record button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't podcast to listen to. (laughs) (laughs) Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts where they might learn something? Hey everybody, this is Randy Newberg, and that is... Corey
1: Jacobson here with the Elk Talk podcast. Yes, from Bozeman, Montana. From the comforts of upstairs at the home of Randy Newberg in Bozeman, Montana. At the Randy Room, as my <laughs> wife calls it. Go
0: to your room, shall will say.
1: <laughs> you know, there could be worse places to get sent.
0: Yeah, your, your wife ever tell you that? Go to your room. No.
1: Really? No, I just, before she ever has to say anything, I know. Uh, well, we have the rainy room. When we built this house,
0: she said, you get the upstairs. And we're, those watching here, it's not a wide enough shot to see my herd of antelope here. Uh, <laughs> and over around the corner, she says, you know, in your family, that stuff is art. In my family, though, they are
1: just dead animals. <laughs> get them out of here. So, I did have a room at our last house designated the DAR. And that was the dead animal room. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well... Anyhow, we're going to talk about all elk. All the time. Nothing but elk. Only elk. <laughs> we keep telling people that we better start delivering. Yeah. It. <laughs>
0: <they're> false, <laughs> false statements there. This podcast is brought to you by the
1: Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation,
0: whose mission in life is to ensure the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. Man,
1: if that doesn't resonate and you're listening to this podcast, yeah, you probably punched the wrong button. Yeah, you, you
0: you should go download
1: sewing with Emily or something, <laughs> or at least Dutch oven cooking. Yeah,
0: there you go. How to three putt or something? <laughs> yeah, you know?
1: gosh. Because I think that that Randy and I at least align a hundred percent on on that mission. Right. We 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 might be
0: like his different. Well, well we. Yeah, we're very different on a lot of other things. <laughs> but the mission of the Elk Foundation, we're, right. we're on the same train there. Yep. So with all of this, we, we shortened up the last episode after the first two episodes being... Over like, two hours. Yeah. yeah. And uh, this one, you told your wife to be here in an hour. Yeah. So we better get with the program. We're going to. She
1: knows if I say an hour that that's probably realistically <laughs> an hour and a half. Two hours might be more realistic. So, oh. but we do have. We're watching the timer here, and when we get to an hour, we're definitely going to get. We're going to cut it off. That's right, because we're going to uh, with the price Our time, word is our bond. Ooh, oh boy, we better get with it then. So <laughs> I want to talk
0: about these Gerber knives that I use. I, I use these uh, Gerber Vital, Gerber Big Game Vital. I use all their tools, their center drive, their multi-tools. They make this podcast possible. And I think if people are looking for a really good thing to have in their kill kit, they should go and find those gl- Gerbers. Definitely.
1: And I think that's something important to mention here while we're talking about our sponsors is we're not trying to hard sell anybody no. on go and buy this. These are the people who we've partnered with right. well before the podcast yeah. that both Randy and I align with. And I think that's important. You know, we have other Brands that we use that don't align necessarily on on the same, you know, bows, for instance. We don't shoot the same brand of bows. So having one sponsor versus the other doesn't work. These sponsors align with what Randy and I have been using. And it makes sense for us uh, to continue partnering with them. And we share them because they're making this possible. And if you're in the market or need some help in one of these areas, these are who we recommend. Not because we're getting paid by them, because... We've right. used them for years and and truly believe in that brand and that company and that product. And we know it works. Absolutely. So, and because of that, Sitka Gear yeah. is part of this podcast. Who, yeah. as everyone who's listened to the first three episodes knows, I've been with since the very beginning. You've been with since just about the very beginning. Yeah. And we've bought a lot of Sitka Gear with money out of our pocket. Right and believe in it enough that we kept hounding them and saying, please, please, please <laughs> let us be a partner. And Yep, and
0: now we are. But like, uh, besides making high-performance clothing that's going to last for a long time, I mean, I was looking at some of the Merino tops that yeah. I've had since 2011 or whenever they came out with yeah. their Merino line. I've got hundreds of days on those, and Merino's not known uh, for being say. the most
1: durable product yeah. out there.
0: Yeah. Just chugging along.
1: Yep. And it, honestly, if I would have kept the original, I had an original set of mountain pants and the core shirt, and I believe they called it the mountain vest back then. No, it was a Celsius vest. Celsius vest. I uh, had that original set and then the original 90% jacket all in the uh, mountain mimicry mm-hmm. pattern. And I gave it to a friend when I got the new pattern had I kept it, I promise you it would still be going. Yeah. And that was 2006? Yeah. 12 years? Yeah. That's, I mean, that's one set of gear. And yeah. they've obviously evolved a lot and added to the the layers and the different systems, but quality. quality. Yeah. yeah. And
0: they support conservation in Absolutely.
1: a big way. And they are big game hunters who
0: designed yeah. it around their needs. Yeah. We need to get if if Barclow's up shooting at the Total Archery Challenge. He will be. Will he? Yep. You suppose we can hijack him? Be awesome. He's like the, he is the mad scientist of clothing. I love talking clothing and product development with Barclow. He is like the dude. So, along with that, we have GoHunt.com. They, I I mean, like you were saying uh, last time, is. I, I got hooked up with them the very first trade show they went to at Elk Camp in Vegas. I walked in there, I'm like, yeah, right, sure. <laughs> I gave them my credit card and I said, I'm going to try this out. And I tried it and I got a hold of them and I'm like, hey, you know, this this is pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> so anyhow, if you want to find out, I mean, it's improved. They, they've just added so much in the last, what, four years? Since oh, yeah. That. And
1: even in the last 18 months, I think they've, they've really stepped it up yeah. with, what they offer.
0: And the the service they provide, it's called the Insider. And if you want to go and get that service for free, go to GoHunt.com. I got to make sure I get this right. I got it written <laughs> down here, Corey. GoHunt.com
1: forward slash. Elk Talk. Elk Talk. One word. One word. Yep. And they'll get a 30-day free trial. Yep. And you'll know you're at the right place if there's a picture of me and Randy on the page. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. And then you can just sign up free 30-day trial, you can, I mean, there's nothing withheld. It's not like you get a sneak peek at one area. You get full access to the insider membership. Yeah. And in 30 days, you can accomplish a lot of scouting and looking at draw odds and get an idea for just how powerful it is. Yeah. The only warning is that when your 30 days is up, you're going to say, I didn't get enough. (laughs) You're going to become addicted. I signed up the same way. I thought, you know, I'll try it once, but I'm Yeah, yeah. I'll cancel and I'm three years in now and (laughs) still finding value in it. Yeah. And then
0: we got, you've got a table full of calls here. Yeah. From Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls.
1: I do. Those are your personal
0: stash This is
1: my personal go-to stash. If you're watching this on YouTube, you'll notice the beautiful color variation in there. There's a, a neon green one, a neon pink one, and a white one. Those are my three personal securely kept calls that basically I don't let out of really? my sight. So
0: if we wanted to raise money for conservation, we could have like an online silent auction? It probably Would wouldn't do good. If
1: you wanted to see me get very irritable and nervous, <laughs> you could hide them <laughs> under a pillow somewhere. And those are my four calls uh, that, I, that I go to. Like if I'm doing a seminar or anything, I just I grab that and I know that those calls are Okay, perfect.
0: So they can't get those calls that Corey keeps under his pillow.
1: But if (laughs) they use use
0: promo code ELKTALK out at Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls.
1: They get 15% off of those same style of calls. Right. Everything. Anything. Anything anything on the website. 15% off. Yeah. Yep. So they can go to buglingbull.com or rockymountainhuntingcalls.com. Yeah. And buy, buy as many as,
0: as you want. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's no reason, you know, my, I, I'm trying to make gooder part of the American vernacular, that if two calls are good, four would be gooder. I don't know if
1: vernacular is a true word, is it? A gooder is, I don't know. Well, no, I knew gooder was, I just I thought made, thought maybe I vernacular made up, was a yeah. word you oh, made no, up. I made that one up. <laughs> okay. That, yeah. I,
0: in last pod, the first podcast, you were dropping these, like, Two dollar words all the time. I'm like, man. And? Yeah, I'm like using but and there. And one time I said <laughs> furthermore, I think I'm like, whoa, that's impressive. Furthermore. That's a three-syllable word. I know. So uh but Rocky Mountain
1: hunting calls. Yep. Promo, and if you promo go, code elk talk. Promo code elk talk. Go to their website. Uh, and I think just touching on that, find a call that fits you. Like oh, that's yes. that's the hard part is people pick yep. up a diaphragm call. And they'll try it and say, I can't use calls. Mm -hmm. Get a couple different ones because they are made completely different. The latex is different. The frame's different. So many variables that all it takes is tweaking a little bit to become a way better elk caller than you thought you were. Yeah.
0: Because me and my big wide Scandinavian mouth, I found that the Reaper really works good for
1: me. And see, I've got a very narrow mouth with a high palate and the all-star and the contender, which are on a little bit smaller frames, work great for me. Huh. There you have it, folks. But let's not forget about Onyx.
0: Yeah. Onyx, onyxmaps.com is where you go to use the promo code. Yep. Uh, I'm trying to think how my hunting would be if I didn't have Onyx.
1: I know just using a GPS without a chip from Onyx, getting the chip completely amplified my abilities with the GPS, and now... I don't know where my GPS is because everything's on the app on the phone and I can have it right there. Yeah. I, oh,
0: if you told me you got, you're only allowed to grab what you can fit in a small box to take <laughs> hunting with you, I can assure you my ONX system is going to be in that very small box. And why is that? What's the benefit of it? Well, for the, the places I hunt. So I, hunt, I like to hunt these sanctuary kind of spots. And boundaries create sanctuaries. Yep. And and I don't care if it's archery hunting, if it's rifle hunting, if it's early season, pre-rut, post-rut, late season. A lot of people are not comfortable hunting boundary areas. And so I purposefully apply where there is a lot of public-private interface because those boundaries become, in effect, sanctuaries. Yep. You, you, I, I often say in my seminars that if you're looking for a sanctuary, you need to go to a place where someone says, I don't want to shoot an elk there. And usually that's distance or topography. <laughs> but a lot of times people say, I don't want to hunt there because I got to deal with the headache of this boundary. Yeah. Well, if I've got my OnX system in my hand on my smartphone, I'm just trucking right along, man. I It has changed <laughs> everything about it does. where I apply, how i hunt how how comfortable i am doing this threading the needle sometimes we have those long skinny strips that then open up into big pieces yep. back in the days when you were just trying to do that with a map or, or <laughs> even with a gps that you didn't know the surface ownership yep. it's just yeah it's changed everything awesome about it so so they but, get
1: a discount on that hunt app on, on membership the app,
0: if they go to onxmaps.com and use promo code elk
1: Talk, talk. <laughs> one word. Man, we, <laughs> it, this just makes sense. Elk Talk. It's like uh, it's you. You came up with that name, didn't you? I did. That's, um, I give full credit to you because that is a good name. Well, that's because I have that forum called Hunt
0: Talk. Yeah, and so I thought, you know what? I'm going to go buy the domain name Elk Talk. <laughs> uh, but and then we'll figure out something to do with it, right? Yeah. And so I didn't quite buy Elk Talk.com. I bought Elk Talk Podcast.com. I And so I started doing, on my YouTube channel, I started, all my elk instructional stuff is now under the umbrella of elk talk. Because we're talking about elk hunt. Makes sense. uh, But anyhow, with all of that, um, we get a lot of questions about where do you set up your camp? Yeah. How close, how far do you do a bivy camp? Do you do a, a base camp? I I don't know how many of those questions I got just in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, Um,
1: especially the last few weeks. I think people are thinking about camp systems and setups, and same mm -hmm. here. A lot of emails coming in, very specific, almost touching on every one of those different situations you mentioned.
0: Yeah. So I'll be the guy who asked you the question to start with. You do a lot of archery hunting. You're hunting, do
1: you hunt much?
0: What I call early season is August.
1: Not as much. This year we're going to Oregon and hunting Roosevelt elk and it opens August 25th. So okay. that's, that's really about the earliest that I actually get out hunting, okay. but we're definitely in the field, August 15th on and paying attention to what's going on out okay. there. Then you're hunting a lot of pre-rut,
0: a lot of yeah. peak rut. So you're archery hunting through the end of September, at least possibly the first, first week of, of October. October. Yep. Okay. Um For me, I, I'm. I'm doing some of that, but I'm really getting after the elk about October 10th, October 15th. I do a lot of post rut and a lot of late season hunting. And I'm just curious uh, if weather determines what kind of camp you're going to do.
1: I would say so. And I, th- I think, you know, there's a lot that goes into it. Um, the different camp types, you know, you've got a base camp where you're Camping where you can drive to, and then maybe hunting from right there, walking out of your tent or whatever you have set up, RV, and, and hiking from there. Uh, the next step would be a base camp that maybe you're camping in a central location, then driving each day and doing day hunts, but coming back to that base camp. Uh, you can do a spike camp, which is having a, a base camp set up, but then another camp maybe six miles back in where you either get dropped off with a, you know, a packer takes you in there with a string of horses and drops off a camp that becomes your base camp, but it's a little bit more remote. You aren't driving there, you're on foot. And then you take it to the extreme level of bivy hunting where you're carrying camp on your back and going. And I think each of those is applicable in each season, but it adds a, a whole new level of complexity the later in the season you go, because now you aren't using a 30 pound or a 30 degree sleeping bag yeah. and a two season tent. <laughs> You've got to have a four season tent and a heavier sleeping bag and um, food and warmth, the clothing that you're packing, boots, all of that gets amplified a bit the later in the season you go.
0: Yeah, it it definitely, weather being a function of later in the season, so the season kind of drives some of that answer for me. Another thing that drives that answer for me is if it's a unit I'm familiar with or not familiar with. If it's a unit I'm not familiar with, I need to give myself the mobility and the flexibility to be going over here today and over there tomorrow so I'm usually going to do a base camp in a in an area that I'm not that familiar with and it's going to be kind of centrally located within a 20 to 30 minute drive of trailheads that I'm I'm just in in a place I'm not familiar a lot of my hunting is almost scouting yeah and so the the base camp type situation at that point whether it's archery or or late in the season gives me the flexibility I need.
1: And how have you mm-hmm. determined that centrality as far as you know, you said a trailhead within twenty minutes here over there? Is that preseason? Are you doing the scouting and identifying maybe from some e-scouting? Yep. Here's a trailhead I want to check out. Here's one I want to check out. Here's one and right in the middle. Here's another place I could hunt. I can get to all these other places. That's exactly it. It, Did you watch our e-scouting video that hasn't been
0: released yet? No. (laughs) Okay, so we just filmed one yesterday. Uh, I think it's episode 12. We started out, this is with Onyx. We're going to do eight of these. And I'm like, well, you just said 12 and 12 comes after eight. I know. Okay. So we started out at eight. (laughs) We're at 12. And I think we might have to do 13. Hopefully not 14. But anyhow, in that... My, my camera guy, Dan, he's like, well, Randy, it's easy for you to say this is where I'm going to camp. Can you go into a little detail about why you're going to camp there? Because yeah. I'm, I've am i hunted elk for about four years. I have no idea why you picked that spot. I'm like, oh, okay. And it was this, kind of the same question yeah. you just anth- asked was there,
1: uh, the way I approach it is... So let, me, I, let me interrupt you really quickly. Okay. Where can people go to find that e-scouting series that uh, you- Talk okay, about
0: Every Monday, we're releasing a new video on our YouTube channel, Randy Newberg Hunter. Okay. Or if you subscribe to the Onyx app, you're getting notified about it.
1: Onyx is no pushing it out. Is that what the app. on the little app thing? I have like seven in a little circle. Yeah, and you have
0: you're like ignore, I'm ignore, pulling ignore. it up here. Oh, I, I saw
1: Randy ignore oh, inbox right. or seven messages in my you know, oh. E scouting with Randy Newberg edges and disruptions episode two. There you Click go. on that; it takes me to YouTube, and there is Randy Newberg Hunter YouTube channel. There you go. Twenty three thousand views on episode two. Wow! Yeah. And there's part three, part four. Yeah. So excellent. Oh yeah. So sorry that was a sidetrack. No, but, I
0: thank you for <laughs> for that piece because I. I've, I would have felt like I was like... Self-promoting. Yeah, I was overstepping myself. But (laughs) This is the Elk Talk podcast. We can talk about elk. Can we? Okay. Well, so Dan says this and it caused me to think, oh, here I am. I've been doing this for so many years. I just looked at the map and the way I do my planning. It was like intuitive to me because I've done it so many times. But it wasn't always that way and the way that I build my plan and people will see this especially in my late season plans and my my post-wrap plans I try to have anywhere from 2 to 4 general areas that when I say a general area okay this has the th- this general area it might be you know 5 miles by 5 miles it has things I know elk will will need at that time of year I'm hunting them. This spot over here is another one that has some of the need. They can satisfy needs there. And I'm trying to give myself enough options because when I'm e-scouting, I'm using my knowledge and experience and all my research, all the investment I've made in education about elk, but there's no guarantee I'm going to show up. It might be a drought year and everything's out the window. Or everyone else has seen the same elk that I was thinking, oh, I've heard there's some good elk in there. It's the community spot. Yeah, (laughs) go up to Blueberry Ridge, man. That's the place. And I go there and everyone's there. So you just, you got to give yourself that flexibility. Disclaimer,
1: Blueberry Ridge is not a real location in our knowledge. So don't go looking for Blueberry Ridge.
0: (laughs) And so I try to give myself flexibility and options. And in doing that, I want to be as efficient with my time as possible. Yep. And that is why campsite selection is so important yep. to that. Otherwise, I'm going to spend so much time buzzing around, getting way over to my alternate unit, my fallback unit. Or I decided, ah, I'm going to go in here. I'm going to roll the dice. I'm going to do a, some sort of backpack on. I get in there and it's a bust. Yep, I've, I spent a whole day hiking in. I got a whole day hiking out. I got another day hiking into my fallback spot. If I've only got a six, seven day vacation time, I've already wasted half of it just because I screwed up on my camp selection. Yep, I agree. And that doesn't leave me much time to kill an elk after that. Nope. And I don't care if you're rifle hunting, archery hunting, whatever. So that's why I say when, when, especially when it's a unit that, I've not hunted before, and I'm really in that recon mode, it's, uh, it's always going to be uh, some type of base camp that yep. gives me
1: flexibility. And do you find, I know for me, if once I set up camp, and that's my base camp, if I find elk an hour and a half away, for whatever reason... I don't like going to that area because it's too far of a drive. I don't like pulling up camp. And once I get camp set up, especially in a base camp situation, we spend very little time at camp. We get in there two hours after dark. We're up and out of there at least an hour before dark. We don't come back in the middle of the day. So it's not like we're lounging around cooking a steak dinner before we head out for the evening hunt. Right. Going back and taking camp down is a missed opportunity to be hunting. Huge, And I, I know it's probably especially if it's day two or day three and we find elk an hour and a half away, but I always find myself staying at that base camp and not relocating it. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's so important for me, especially to find that central location where I'm going to be able to have five or six backup areas to check out within a reasonable you know, I would say 20 minutes, 30 minutes max driving distance. Yeah. When someone
0: started, or not someone, when people started asking me the question, one time I just went back, watched all of our episodes, and I made a note. Did we base camp or did we baby camp? Base camp, backpack camp. What I found, and it's nothing about Montana specific, but this is my home turf. I'm really comfortable with the places I hunt in Montana. I've been hunting them for years and years (laughs) so it's not like i'm going into this basin and i'm experimenting i know all right this happened this weather this time of year all right it's september 20 whatever it is i'm going in there with a purpose and i'm able to go there and i'm comfortable i feel it's a lot less risk to go into an area i know totally and stake my claim with a backpack on and i I get a lot of people say, I'm going to Colorado on my first year. I really want to get way back in there. <laughs> I'm like, please don't do that. Yep. You don't have enough. Uh, and this is nothing personal. It's just your elk knowledge probably isn't where it will be 10 years from now. Totally. And you are really, ro- I mean, this is like betting that the Vikings are going to win a Super Bowl. That's how <laughs> low the odds are. <laughs> and it's just. It, it, you're putting yourself at a disadvantage and I try to discourage people from doing that yeah. if if they're gonna go do a backpack hunt they usually are experienced enough where they're like alright I know this Hopefully. spot I know a lot about out but you do get a lot of people who this is their first few hunts I would tell them give yourself more options yeah. and know that and I don't care if it's archery or rifle know that by having to explore different places, you're going to learn more Yeah, because you're going to, one day you're going to be in a place with higher hunting pressure. One day you're going to be in a place with lower pressure. One day you're going to be maybe way back in there. One day, maybe you're going to be not that far from a road, but there's just a really steep grade that sorts out all the people. The more mobile you are, the more you're probably going to gain in elk knowledge because you're going to, move around and hunt in different spots.
1: And you mentioned the word right there, mobile. And that's for us, that's everything. The the more mobile you are, the more opportunities you have, the more encounters you have. And that's what it's really all about. And you lock yourself into one area. And and you mentioned if you are hunting your home state where you know the elk, you know what's going on, you're going to be more comfortable doing a bivvy type hunt. We've actually transitioned to almost exclusively not bivvy hunting even in areas we know because of the factors of other hunters and predators. And, you know, it's not that we're afraid to camp in grizzly country or wolf country. It adds some complexity, but the effect that they have on hunting in that area, especially wolves and in the -the over-the-counter public land areas we hunt in Idaho, there might be a, a huge herd of elk in there. And the next day there might be a pack of wolves moves in and those elk either completely move out or they completely change and they're no longer even huntable because of their habits. And you get back in and you experience success. I talked to a guy last year that went into the same area. They've been hunting forever and had good success. He got in there the first night, multiple bulls bugling all over. His hunting partner got there the next day and they went out hunting. He's like, oh, we're, it's good. There's elk everywhere. They didn't hear another bugle in six days of hunting there. And they're bivvied back in eight or nine miles. They've, they've locked into that area and they're committed there. And they hunted there for the next six days and didn't hear a bugle. All they heard were wolves howling at night. And, you know, that's just, I've had a couple experiences like that where I finally realized I need encounters. I can't waste three or four days finding out if they're elk (laughs) there, if they're bugling, (laughs) why they aren't there, and then move to a new area. Right. I need to be mobile. And so we've gone to, um, I say almost, because we always have a bivvy pack in the truck with us. And if we drive an hour and get into elk and they're bugling two miles from the road... We'll go back to the truck, we'll throw out our one-man tents and our sleeping bags that are in our bivvy pack, we'll boil up a mountain house or whatever we're having for dinner, and the next morning we'll get up from the truck and go up and hunt there. Yeah. And that just allows us to be mobile, it's almost a, a hybrid approach at base camp and bivy hunting. Yeah. And for me,
0: and like you, we hunt all public land. Yeah. With public land comes more hunting pressure. Yeah. And I, I would say that in places with higher hunting pressure, I want the mobility that comes with a base camp. Yep. Because you go back into your some drainage, it just, it looks so good on Onyx. You're like, I just, I got to go. <laughs> it's going to take me six hours to get in there, but I got to go. Well, the odds are, if it looks that good, supposedly, there might be four other guys who've set up camp in there. Yep. And you get in there and you cannot respond to hunting pressure W- with a backpack bivy type camp, the way you can respond and adapt to hunting pressure with a base camp. Absolutely. And for the places I hunt, that's like, you know, <laughs> Black Friday morning at Walmart. <laughs> it's like, man, there's a lot of people here.
1: Well, and the other thing, you know, the, the benefit of us having those bivy packs in the truck is if we're an hour away from base camp and we find elk can we get back to the truck at 11 o'clock at night, we drive back, we cook dinner, we go to bed, it's 1230 We've got to get up an hour earlier now to drive back over there. That's hard to do a couple of days in a row. Yeah. And the chances of somebody else being parked there before us, we aren't going to go up there if there's a truck parked there. Yeah. We just, I, I don't deal well with other people being in an area I want to hunt. Even if we know we can out hike come and get away from whatever it is, I just, I don't ever double up on a parking area. Yeah. And so that allows us to basically claim that area and be the first ones up the next. And I don't say claim like we have exclusive right to it, but but we are now parked there. And if somebody (laughs) else has that same mindset, when they show up in the morning, like I'm going somewhere else because somebody else is already here. And so it does save us drive time, gets us extra sleep, gives us an advantage to be the first one up the mountain instead of driving all night. A lot of times I've showed up. I mean, this has happened in places.
0: I've done it in Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada. I pull up and I kind of have my idea of where I'm going to set up my base camp, but I've never been there before. What I'll do is I'll just throw out my cot and my sleeping bag that night. Yeah, I'll unhook my trailer. And the next day when I'm scouting, that's when I decide, mm, no, you don't want to make <laughs> your base camp where you thought, Randy. You're going to be doing an hour and a half drive every morning to find whatever it is you're yeah. hunting. So I'll go back. I've done it before. Hook my trailer back up again. Threw my sleeping bag and caught in there, and then I went and kind of set found camp. the ideal campsite.
1: Right. So, yeah. what are what are things you look for in a base camp to make it ideal? Obviously, being central to several areas, but are there yeah. other features that? Boy, it's
0: it, it's very dependent upon what uh, what season of the year I'm hunting. Um, in archery season, I want those uh, base camps to be near places with the best food sources I see on the mountain and, or on the hills, whatever. And the reason is, is the cows are going to be where the best food is. So I, it, it gets back to how I do my, my entire plan is I want a spot that gives me proximity to where they're going to satisfy their need. And a lot of people are like, why do you hunt a food source when breeding is the primary need? Well, cows, it's food year <laughs> round. And you can't do a lot of breeding without cows. Yep. So I I look at the in the in this e scouting series, the the episode before the, the the so we 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 completely destroyed unit 16A in New Mexico. I'm sorry, <laughs> all of you who have a 16A tag. I've had the archery tag and I've had a late C uh, or a post rut rifle tag. That's it's really the only unit I could think of that. Met all the criteria. Okay. We're going to show a place that's hard to draw so that we're going to screw up as few people as possible. It's got to be a place where I've had success in both a late, uh, this post route hunt and an archery hunt. It, it met all that criteria. Yeah. But there's the disclaimer that there's a lot of things that I'm not necessarily holding their hand to say, oh, you got to be right here. So, yeah don't necessarily look at that and say oh i'm going right there so that's not the unit we drew together right no it's the one next you should have told them about that unit that was the unit that. well i've never drawn a rifle tag in there oh okay that's why i
1: didn't i actually ran into a lady last weekend at the total archery challenge in utah Uh that has that same tag oh really and Uh she was all excited and upbeat (laughs) and i said turn the tag back in see if you can get your point i mean New Mexico doesn't mm-hmm. have points, but just get a refund. That that unit is not worth hunting. You could just uh, see the light leave eyes. I say, like, okay, it's not uh, that bad. Let me let me give you some pointers here. And uh, well,
0: uh, where I was going with that is <laughs> uh, in the area of the unit where I decided to do a a pre rut early September hunt. I still ended up doing a base camp because. I'm I'm looking for food as the place that right. will concentrate the cows and yeah the the bulls they're, they're they're just coming in at the beginning of that season they're coming into the pre rut phase from the early phase so there's still a bit of a food pattern there but it's going to quickly transition to a breeding pattern where the bulls are are on a food pattern is usually a little bit higher maybe in a little bit more remote area and I want I'm hunting these areas where these bulls can quickly be to the cows, even though they're not with them all day, every day, they're coming and checking. As I
1: say, during that pre-rut especially, they'll travel a long ways in their staging area where they have food and security down to where the cows are. And so they're transitioning their needs on a daily basis there, sometimes for a week at a time. Right.
0: And then by the time that season's over, it ends on September 14th. It's full on. Yep. And so now these elk have transitioned. They might have moved two or three miles, the bulls anyhow. Yep. So what my camp selection was based on what gives me the most flexibility so that I don't have to change my camp location from the first part of the season to the last part right. of the season. And back to the point of giving me mobility to try multiple
1: places without pulling a camp. So yep. that's uh, those were... so. So you answered the question... Let me go a little bit further, a little more specific. Mm-hmm. Are there campsite features that oh. you look for in addition to being central to the needs of the elk and the features that you're looking for in a hunting area? Are there actual specific needs that Randy has? It, there are,
0: but the fact of the matter is, you're never going to find all the <laughs> all the things you're looking for. Right? I've I've pulled up and couldn't find a spot to really set up the classic camp, and I end up right alongside a county road and dusty, noisy. It's like, oh my goodness, why did I... Kind of like where we set up in New Mexico there. (laughs) (laughs) We just didn't have a choice. I've never... Well, right, because you can't camp on state land in New Mexico and everything else around there was state land. There was that little pocket of BLM. and four units congested all the hunters to camp on. Everybody done that little piece of BLM. So, um, but as far as features... uh,
1: it's water important.
0: It, it, I I usually I don't rely on I'm, I mean if I'm doing a backpack on obviously water is huge. Yep. But if I'm doing a base camp hunt, I usually have my water with me. I'm not filtering water. Uh so that it's not that big of a deal. I'm I'm usually trying to find some place that I like to find one of these spur roads that just ends. Yep. You know, it leaves the forest service road and it just ends 200 yards off the forest service road. It'll be more quiet. I I can get more sleep at night. I know people are like, well, when you're old, I guess you need a lot of sleep. <laughs> no, like you were saying, when you're getting up that early and you're heading out, you're, you want to be out there before the sun comes up and you're hunting all day and you're coming back, you got to cook a meal. For us, we got to download footage, charge yeah. batteries, all that stuff. I want some place where I'm going to get some really good sleep.
1: Well, I know even when we hunted here in Montana together, You know, we were camping, there was grizzly concerns, and so Mm -hmm. our camping location changed, but we were driving 45 minutes to an hour every morning and then back every night. And just by the time you get back, prepare dinner, charge batteries, download footage, (laughs) get up the next morning, get something to eat, head out, we're going on five hours of sleep a night, and you do that for seven days straight, it's taxing. Yeah, And so if you try to do that for four weeks straight after seven (laughs) days straight in September... you pretty soon either crash or you have to take a day or two and <laughs> right. regroup. So Yeah.
0: as far as features like that, though, I, I, obviously I, I'm wanting the most level ground I possibly can. I like a, if at all possible, a timbered area that gets some shade. Usually the dust is less. If the wind starts blowing at night, my tent's not going to be flapping in the wind. It's, it's just little things, you know, yeah. after you, you spend a hundred nights a year in a tent, uh, <laughs> I, that's a lie because towards the end, I'm getting to be so tired of tents that if we're uh, doing 100 days in the field each year, by about day 75, I'm looking for motels. I'll, I'll fess up. I'm like, you know what? But anyhow, when you
1: when you spend... <laughs> but also at that point, you have less daylight hours so you can sleep and still get to right. sleep and drive a little drive farther.
0: More. Right, that, that definitely is part of it. So I, I don't know that there's any real feature it's just you look at it and you're like this would be a nice camp spot um for for just the ideas of how close like a lot of people ask if you do a
1: backpack hunt how close will you camp to where you know the elk are. Yeah, I think that's probably, when it comes to camp selection, probably the number one email I get is, Me too. how do you pick that bivy camp location each night? You know, do you camp on the ridge above the elk? You mentioned getting on the ridge and hiking to get bugles. So do you want to be above them when, when it gets daylight? Mm-hmm. Do you camp below them? You know, it's all of those questions of what is the exact place to camp on a bivy hunt?
0: Yeah, for me, I want to camp someplace where my camp and my presence there at night is not going to disturb the elk. Yeah, one of the worries I have if I camp above them is that cold air is sinking, and you got the downwind downhill thermal. Yeah, in the at the night hour,
1: man, it, it
0: that can create a problem. Yeah,
1: and ninety nine percent of the time you're at camp is going to be with down thermals. Right. That late evening into early morning, <clears throat> the thermals are down, so I think it's so important. You know, during the day you, we rely on wind. Mm-hmm. If you're backcountry hunting or bivy hunting. You have to rely on wind on your camp location. Yeah,
0: so I usually defer to a lower elevation if I think the animals are going to be above me, because when I'm at my camp, whether it's morning, you know, early morning or late evening, that downwind thermal or downhill thermal is coming from them to me. Yep. So I'm usually setting a camp that is going to be below where I think the animals are, whether deer or elk, and I want some place where I only have to go about ten yards for water. Do you want to camp at water, which usually puts you in the bottom of a drainage. Usually. And uh, in the northern Rockies, we have so much water that it's really not a concern. The further south, you start getting, it's like, well, if I'm camping close to water, there's not a lot of water here. These animals, these elk need this water. Is my presence here going to mess that up? So sometimes I'll go camp away from water and just know I got to filter it and I got to haul a lot of water Some yep. some spot. So <laughs> I, I, people always ask me for a distance. And I would say if I'm going into a spot on a backpack hunt and I think the animals are over there, my camp's probably never going to be within a mile of them. Maybe that's too safe, yeah. but I can cover a mile in the dark and... 30 oh, 40 easy. minutes in the morning yeah and I, i've spent all this time all this effort to get in there the last thing i want to do is blow them out because if you blow them out of your spot in a backpack hunt
1: you've you've kind of wasted your, yeah. your
0: opportunity
1: the other thing to consider is elk move at night and yeah. so you know I've, <laughs> i can't tell you how many times we've laid in camp and listened to elk you know it's like we're going there in the morning and the next morning, they're four miles away on the other side of the canyon. You know, that's their their pattern that they move through. And so if you're camped on a ridge and the elk are safely on the other side of the ridge, well, at night they decide to go down and drink. And now the thermals are down in the bottom and they're in the bottom. They smell you. They know where the thermals are coming from. They know where danger is and they move into another canyon and are gone. And so it's, it's like hunting, you know, mid-morning. If you're early morning moving up the mountain, you've got to be thinking about where the elk are going to be mid-morning, what the thermals are going to be doing. It's the same when you're setting up that backcountry camp. You need to be considering where are the elk moving to, where are they going to feed and water at night, where are they bedding during the day, and then plan your camp accordingly. Um, and for me, I, this is, you kind of said
0: it about how times you'll park at a trailhead. If I'm going into a spot that has a trail going up in there, I will camp somewhat close to that trail so that if other hunters come in, they're like, Hmm, someone's already here. All right, I'm going to veer up over this ridge and go the other way. And and they don't have to. I mean, it's public land. They can do whatever they want. And if I was the guy hiking in and saw their camp 10 yards off the the dirt trail, I would, I'd be discouraged. I'd be discouraged. And I'd go up over some other ridge. I, just cause I, I, I'd say, all right, they got this
1: basin. Um, I'm going somewhere else. And I can look at it and say, you know, it's public land. It's a free country. I can (laughs) go up there if I want to. I don't want to. I don't want to. If they're in there, I don't want to beyond the ethics of it, beyond any of that. I just don't want to hunt where there are other people because now I'm relying on what they're doing and how good of a hunter they are. And if they are getting on top of the ridges in the morning and dropping down on the elk calling to them and that pressure that they've put in there then the ethical part of, you know, they were here first. And yes, it's a free country. Yes, it's public land. But, and again, that comes back to areas because there's some places in Colorado where you drive 15 miles on a road and you get to the end of the road and that's the trailhead. Yeah. And there's maybe twenty vehicles parked <laughs> there and everybody's going back in ten miles and varying off into other drainages. So it's not like if you see a truck you need to leave the area ethically right. because that's not your area. That's not what we're saying. It's, no, there's some places that just is the reality you're yeah. gonna deal
0: with. So the other thing that comes up very often is camping in Grizzly Country.
1: Yeah. Can yeah, we back yeah. up just a bit sure. on Bibby Hunts? So yeah. You like to camp in the bottom. Mm-hmm. I actually prefer to get on the ridge and then drop off the back side of the ridge. The so I side. still, okay. I'm three quarter mountain. I've gained the elevation. I don't lose that elevation, but my thermals are blowing down the backside of that. The so other if, direction. Yeah, if there's a basin that I'm wanting to hunt that the elk are in, I'll get on the ridge and drop off the back of the backside. And that way in the morning, I have a short climb to be up there and be able to pinpoint where the elk are and then make a play from there. Huh. Because so many times they do move over onto a ridge or into another basin. And right. so I prefer to get up higher bivy hunting and set up camp on the backside. So I'm not, no thermals are ever going down into that basin that I'm hunting. Well, when you get older,
0: you'll say, I, where can I drop? Where's the first place I can drop <laughs> yeah. this heavy pack? Exactly.
1: <laughs> get some of this stuff out Which of Which might pack. be why we don't do as much bivy hunting now. <laughs> no, I really do think it comes back to being mobile and the efficiency that comes from and mobile there's something to be said about backcountry hunting oh i love it and just going in that solitude and being able to see new area and know that you don't have to turn around if you're into elk you don't have to turn around and get back seven miles to the truck you can stay right there uh but with that it's uh you have to be pretty selective about the area and what you're doing and how you're
0: doing it yeah and i'll even do it and this gets back to the hunting pressure thing i will do a you you kind of mentioned you'll do a little combination of it I always have with me my Hilleberg tent, a light sleeping bag, something that I could throw it in my pack and I could hoof it in four miles and spend a couple nights. I always have that with me. And the way hunting pressure works in most of the places I'm at, I know that on Saturday and Sunday it's going to get hammered and I don't care what season it it is, it's more amplified in the rifle seasons, that these elk are going to get pushed further away from roads and trails on Monday and Tuesday. By Thursday and Friday, they're kind of where they're going to be. And so I'm a little more comfortable taking my chance going in there Wednesday afternoon and knowing that, all right, I'm going to be there Wednesday night and Thursday night. I'm going to hunt. That basin Thursday and Friday, because it's a weekday, going to be less likelihood of hunting pressure. Two, the elk have already responded to the weekend hunting pressure, and they are back in these places. They're not down in the other lower, right. they're you know the more accessible places. So there are times where I'll do a hybrid of of each. Yep, and it's you know I can't say that. It's a science. It's kind of a, <laughs> what my gut's telling me at that time.
1: Totally. So. So back but, to where you were going, grizzly country. Grizzly country. You know, you live yeah. in grizzly country. Right. Now, there, you
0: look out that window, there are grizzlies occasionally cross that face.
1: I saw a grizzly yesterday. Yeah, you were up we were up in Glacier and, yeah. and had a grizzly go 80 yards in front of us in the park there. And yeah. uh, my 11-year-old got some really cool pictures <laughs> with his little point-and-shoot <laughs> camera. Um, we hunted last year in Wyoming the year before in Wyoming in heavy grizzly country uh, this year I'm looking forward to taking a break from that are you yeah you're, you're adding... I mean it's it just adds complexity it
0: adds serious complexity yeah. the the part that is I think the enticement to people is that there's some darn good elk hunting in grizzly country yep there's less hunting pressure <laughs> in grizzly country uh, and I always make the qualifier when I talk about gr- hunting in grizzly country that if I end up as a grizzly turd someday, I I understand people say, see, he told you so, yep. Newberg, um, but... Uh, to me that's a way better option than dying in an old folks home no. with someone
1: wiping the slobber from the corner of my mouth <laughs> and honestly that's why we aren't hunting the same grizzly area in Wyoming this year we've done it two straight years we've gotten into grizzlies every time and we just said you know what the odds aren't in our favor if we go back <laughs> we've we've escaped it twice let's take a break and if we go back in the future then yeah. you know we've we've rebalanced the odds again and no, I, and so I take a lot of different
0: precautions when I'm camped in grizzly country. Yeah. Um, i just sitting right here. I, we did a mountain goat hunt south of town here in grizzly country. Uh, I've done a bunch of them down around Yellowstone in grizzly country. Uh, it, it definitely adds a different factor to what you do. You cannot cut corners on keeping a clean camp. Uh, I, in my mind, wh- when you're talking about camp locations, I'm thinking about, all right, if we do shoot something, where's the place where I'm going to be able to hang this meat and it's not going to suck a bear into my camp. Yep. Uh, there's all that, all those kind of things kind of come into play when you're in grizzly country. I've found, and again, it's a sample size of just me, so I can't <laughs> say it's, it's the, the completely true, but. I don't know that grizzly bears want to mess with you any worse than you want to mess with them. But if you give them some incentive to come in and mess with you, they're not accustomed to not getting what they want. Right. A grizzly bear says, I want that. And they go take it from whatever has it. If the wolf has it or the coyote has it, he's like, hey, (laughs) "Hey, pal, (laughs) I weigh 600 pounds, you weigh 40, get out of here. Yep. And if you give them a reason or an incentive to come into your camp because it's dirtier, you got meat hanging by, or you're not really clean with what you're doing with your, your, uh, like mountain house packages or whatever it is, your candy bar wrappers, you're looking, you're, you're, you're increasing the likelihood. Of and trouble. it's not
1: that they are going, if you have your food stored in a tree, 200 yards from camp and they can smell that and they mm-hmm. come in and they're trying to get up in that tree it's not like they're going to get angry and come into your camp and attack you and tear right. you up. Right. They, the reason people get attacked for the most part in camp is like you said, they've kept a dirty camp. They left a food wrapper. They brought food in the tent with them. Whatever it is, that bear came there for a reason and it wasn't to start a fight. It was looking for food. And now you're there trying to get them to go away from the food that they're not used to being told no. Yeah. So that adds a whole nother dynamic to it. And I completely
0: understand when people say I'm not that excited about camping in grizzly (laughs) country. I'll be honest. I'm not that, uh, given the option in camp, not in grizzly country or in grizzly country, if the elk hunting was the same, I'd go camp in, in the place that's not in grizzly country. Unfortunately, where I live in Montana... The elk hunting. Surrounded by Grizzly Country. Yeah. The the Elk hunting is better in Grizzly Country. (laughs) So you're kind of left with that, and it I'm trying to think if I've ever camped in Grizzly Country alone. I don't think that I have.
1: I can just remember our first night in Grizzly Country, it was Dirk and Donnie and I, and every single branch that broke outside the tent (laughs) the first night. You know, it was like, Did you hear that? Yeah. Must have been a squirrel. You know, you, you <laughs> just, it's just deathly quiet. You just you don't even want your yeah. heart to beat because you can hear it and you're listening to every sound. And by the third or fourth night, you're so tired that you're sleeping. And that almost scares you. The next morning, you wake up. It's like, I didn't even wake up last night. And now yeah. I'm getting too comfortable. So it is so important just to take those precautions because yeah. it only takes one incident to yeah. completely change the hunt. I, another thing is, I, I, and this is just me keeping
0: these crazy notes about all the hunts I've done and the more kind of camps. I I noticed that back when I didn't go from hunt to hunt to hunt to hunt, I did more backpack hunts. Yeah. Uh, and I think at that time, the back country experience, the just going and doing it was such a big part of the experience that I was willing to take a higher risk that, all right, someone else will be in there and right. it'll screw me up or If I miss and mess up this opportunity, I'll blow them out and I gotta move my camp two and a half miles and three drainages away. Because I knew, all right, I got six, seven days. I just want this is where I want to be. Now that I go from place to place to place to place, if I were to do all backcountry hunts, I'd be wiped out.
1: Not only that, but just the logistics of planning your food. You know, it's different food you eat at a base camp than on a Bivy hunt. And it takes time to plan that out. And, you know, if you're, for instance, like right now I'm doing the special diet Mm -hmm. and there's very few foods foods I can eat and I'm looking ahead to hunting season, think, you know, planning ahead, what am I going to have in my pack during the day? What am I going to eat during the night? What am I going to eat in the mornings? I'm hiking up the trail for the morning hunt. You know, all of these things, when you backcountry hunt, all of that becomes amplified by weight. And if you're going for seven days, now you have to plan that. And you just can't go on multiple back-to-back bivy hunts without time to prepare for it. Yeah. So
0: one part that comes with your camp is if you're successful. Uh, and I got this question yesterday, actually. The person said, hey, if I'm in, in Colorado in September and I'm successful and my my buddy's with me, do we got to get that elk out that day? Uh, will I be able to hang it for a day or two? what what do i got to do and so for me the i i'm always thinking that part also yep. and in a backpack hunt you you're going to invest at least one extra day getting that animal out it might take two trips to yep. get you and your buddy or whatever whereas in a, <clears throat> a base camp hunt if we're successful the odds are we're going to have coolers we're going to have ice we're going to have whatever We'll hang it, we'll let it cool, and then once it gets cool in the morning when it's at its absolute coolest temperature, if we are worried about it, we'll put it in the coolers then, get it sealed up. But I don't know what your thoughts are, but it's got to be pretty hot before I'm worried that I'm going to lose my meat that day.
1: I think we need to do a whole episode on... Taking care of meat. You think you know, so? pro- I think it would be, that's one of the questions I get a lot is, you know, what do you do to take care of it at camp? If we can't get back to a processor or a, a mm. locker to hang it, how do we keep it good at camp for four days? Yeah. Or what size cooler do we need to transport it? You know, a yeah. whole elk, all of these different questions. I think we could totally dive into that in a, in a full episode and talk about, mm. you know, processing an elk in the field and meat yeah. care at camp and get into some of those logistics. And I think one of the things that, as you touched on that, if you are hunting the backcountry, if you can line up a packer yeah. and have, you know, satellite communication with them and say, <laughs> we've got an elk down, here's the GPS coordinates, bring your pack goats or your llamas or your horses in and get them and have that lined up. It gives you that much more flexibility Uh, I know, you know, Tyler Crockett, who I share an office with, he's hunting with the born and raised guys this year for land of the free. Mm -hmm. And he's wanting to take them on a true backcountry hunt into some of the most roughest and remote country in Idaho. And logistically, that's kind of the only way they can make it happen with three or four tags and only seven or eight days to hunt is we have to have a packer lined up. We have to have somebody on standby that we can say, hey, we've got an elk hanging here. You hang it, make sure it's good and secure, and then you take off and continue hunting. Because right. like you said, even with three or four guys, to bring an elk out and go back in, you've lost two days yep. in that situation. And on a six or a seven day hunt with three tags to fill, you don't have two days to lose. So. <laughs>
0: no. Well, I, I get that question
1: a lot. And a lot of
0: it is, what do you do? Do you do you leave it at your camp? And that kind of gets to the camp selection thing. Yeah. Um, even with a base camp, I want some place that has some shade, obviously, to, yep. if I'm going to hang me. And I want some place where the wind will blow. Um, it's amazing how quickly wind will dissipate the heat out of a large mass like that. If there is a small creek, uh, I'll go and build like a little A-frame over that creek with a tarp. Or right in the creek with the A-frame. And, yeah, yep. because that evaporation effect... Makes it, it creates this little cooler place, microclimate, whatever you want to call it, where that that meat will stay really good for a long time with just a few small adaptations to what you do with your camp. Uh, hmm, A whole episode. Oh, I think we could just between
1: Uh uh, how to break down the elk, how to process it, how to store it in the backcountry, how to store it at a base camp, Uh logistically, you know transporting okay. it, how to put it on ice, dry uh, ice. Oh, I, th- I really think.
0: I thought we'd get them out whole.
1: Well, that, that would be <laughs> scenario one where you back up to the elk skin on it, slide it into the truck, uh, and take it to a butcher and let uh, them process but it. But not
0: before you take your picture of sitting on it you in, have the, to in sit the bed of it. the truck and maybe with your Marlboro cigarette <laughs> hanging out the corner of your mouth.
1: You are from Minnesota. Aren't oh yeah!
0: You? <laughs> I mean, that's that was like the classic. You we know? don't have
1: people like that in Idaho. Support. Okay. Well, you yeah, guys are uptown. Yeah. I mean, we're a bunch of downstreamers. So no, I think that having the the whole elk gutted and straddled on an ATV and then sitting on it, driving the ATV is probably the most picturesque <laughs> scene I can imagine <laughs> in September.
0: Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you? Uh, that gets okay. You brought up ATV. Um, and, and I Disclaimer, we're about to go down a rabbit hole. Yeah, we are. <laughs> but it does have something to do with where I set up my camp. Yep. And you don't always know if this is the case or not, but there are some places, some states, where compliance with motorized travel rules is so low that they should measure the rate of compliance rather than the rate of non-compliance. Yep. Uh, and if I know I'm going into one of those places, I will not do a backpack hunt because
1: for whatever reason, there's a few people out there that just. There is nothing more frustrating in hunting than to spend all your energy and time getting back into an area on your legs (laughs) only to have a motorized vehicle come (laughs) illegally putting up the ridge or behind a closed gate that's non-motorized. Yeah. And it's just the most frustrating and helpless feeling possible. Yeah.
0: So that, that does somewhat affect how and where I set up my camp and whether I do a bivy camp or whether I do any type of, of base camp also. And I don't own an ATV and that's not, I don't have any problem yeah. with them. It's just responsible legal use. Yeah. And anyone who, who wants more proof of, uh, how elk respond to, I call it to motors, go out and Google the Starkey experimental forest. It is a forest in Oregon that between the cooperation of the U S forest service, the elk foundation, a whole bunch of groups, Oregon game and fish. They have their own herd of elk that they do so many studies on. And they've done all these studies about roads and motors and People can think it's a political issue. The science says it's not (laughs) politics at all. It's just how elk respond to motorized traffic in areas with high human use. Because you always get the person who says, well, out at grandpa's ranch, you know, we drive out there, the elk stand there and look at us. Well, yeah. But on public land with normal, regular use that the public lands get, that's not what the results. Yep. They,
1: they associate mean. a gunshot and a motor vehicle right. together. They're, they're able to draw that conclusion. And when during hunting season, the motor vehicle usage goes up and gunshots go up and they, they see Pete straddled over the handlebars <laughs> of an ATV going back to camp and he doesn't show back up at the meadow oh, that night. That, that's not good. No. So
0: I, I guess that is a, a bit of a factor. Like I, I've hunted places in New Mexico Arizona and Utah, where the compliance rates were really, really low. Yep. And uh, I've just accepted it and kind of reset my plan. Plan around, around it. it. Yeah. yeah. And, and say, well, if it is, if the laws of physics allow an ATV to get out to that point, they're going to be one out there in Utah. Yep. <laughs> so that's you you have to hunt <laughs> places where they physically cannot right possibly go right. One of my one of my planning mechanisms for the certain areas is where's a piece of geography where the laws of physics do not allow any ATV <laughs> to get there because but it being
1: closed is not enough. Yep. So or maybe you just find the area that's that's just riddled with ATV trails that are legal use ATV trails. Yeah and just hunt the little pockets in between them because you know that there's enough trails They aren't going to be going off-trail there. Right. <laughs> uh, so so what's, what's uh, your ideal, your most general elk camp look like? What's it look like? Yeah. Do um, you have a two-man tent that you're staying in? Do you have a yep. wall tent that eight people are staying in? You know, I used to do the wall tent thing, and uh, it got to
0: be such a pain. Um and i know some people love wall tents but uh, a lot of times i'm going from hunt to hunt to hunt and if it rains i don't have time to dry out a big wall tent yeah. and i roll it up i get it in there and it already starts getting mold by the time i'm to the next spot uh wall tents if it's windy uh, i i would modify my own wall tents i'd put d rings in about a foot above the ground level, and I'd pull those that canvas as tight as I could. That way, no matter which direction the wind was coming from, yep. I wasn't going to get that slapping effect all night long. Um, but I, my, m- what I've evolved to now is uh, these Hilleberg makes a a two-man and a three-man tent, uh, and I I like spreading my stuff out, so I I just. I, I have these big vestibules on them and that's kind of what I've I went to. Um, we have a little stove. Um, it's uh, it's a Brunton. I bought it in 2004. I, it's a, called the Wind River. Why that stove went out of production, I don't know. <laughs> it's the best stove I've ever seen. Uh, we end up doing a lot of quick meals. Uh, in a camp like that uh you've seen how we bring coolers of stuff that's
1: so great yeah i mean my real wife, food
0: yeah my wife makes amazing food she vacuum seals it we freeze it and we bring one big cooler that is just pre-cooked fro not pre-cooked pre pre-made of was pre-cooked
1: yeah like i mean just picture a whole pan of lasagna right Delicious lasagna, I think the one we had yeah. was what blacktail burger or something yeah, in it. With black. And yeah. already cooked, prepackaged, right. vacuum sealed. All we had to do is boil a pot of water and drop that in it. And it tasted like it was fresh, home cooked. Yeah. And after a long day of hiking and hunting, that was <laughs> huge. Another benefit of being at a base camp, right. but also blending convenience and mm-hmm. quick cook time.
0: Yeah. And so that kind of quality food is available in ten minutes. Yeah you eat it and you can't get to sleep fast enough yep. it's like man i am fulfilled <laughs> at this point point. and so with that i that kind of is how how my camp looks I, I i'm pretty sparse um we usually for all of our production gear we have a little cargo trailer uh the one time you were with me in New Mexico, we had a big cargo trailer. I, yeah. I, it's for sale if anybody wants it. <laughs> I used it for that trip, and that's kind of it. Uh, so I just, I want to, even at my camp, I don't want a big elaborate camp that is more maintenance. Yeah. The more maintenance my camp is, the less hunting time I have. And I see guys wheel out there, and they, they got two dudes just, you know, the, you're like the the tender <laughs> camp at camp. coordinator. Yeah, <laughs> and and I get that. That's probably got a lot of like just generation. That's part of the experience of their hunt. Right. Is the camp experience. Yeah, generation after generation. But for me, I'm out there to chase elk. Yeah, and I want something that's really efficient. I do a lot of just like we are talking, pre-made meals. Uh, my breakfast is really quick and easy. Something I can just throw a, a little jet boil, whatever stove you use, heat up some water and be gone. Um, I don't,
1: I, I just don't get that elaborate about it. Yeah. Maybe I should. But. You know, we're kind of the same. We we set up a large, I've got a Cabela's Alaskan guide tent. It's like mm-hmm. an eight man tent. I bought it gosh, I don't know, 2003 or something. We went to Alaska and it's perfect for three cots. Mm -hmm. We can put a lantern, you know, a battery lantern up in the middle and hang it there. It's plenty tall enough to stand up in. It's got a big vestibule so we can take boots off there. And so for the three of us, Dirk, Donnie and I, that's our every year setup. We put three cots. We each have our assigned position. Mm -hmm. Bags of clothes go underneath each cot. We've got plenty of room. And then we set up just a little cook shack. Donnie has a just a little shade shelter with the the sides on it, mm-hmm. and we'll set up a couple tables in there and our cook stove and all of our food and everything. And ex- this is assuming we aren't in bear country. <laughs> and then uh, you know we can put our little. We've got a little solar uh, battery charger that we charge camera batteries and stuff on each night, and put that in the cook area. So we have an area that's protected from if it's raining or something. We can just go and set up chairs in there. It's a little bit enclosed. We can turn on a, a lantern or the cook stove and it warms up fairly good in there. So that's kind of our, if we're there during the day or when we get back at night, we congregate there. Mm-hmm. The tent's pretty much just for sleeping and getting up and going. Yeah, But yeah, again, keeping it simple. We don't, you know, to my, I know Dirk and Donnie will probably complain about it if we get them on the podcast, but... I don't even have campfires at night. You know, it's Uh, just one more thing to have to cut wood and to build a fire and sit around the fire and worry about it when you leave and completely put it out. Yes, that's part of the experience. But once we fill our tags, we can worry about sitting around the campfire. (laughs) Until then, it's not part of the logistic planning. Yeah,
0: I I think if people drove into our camp, they'd be like, wow, this guy doesn't have a lot going on here. (laughs) But it's with a reason. Yeah. That's what you said. I, I'm not out there to quote-unquote camp. Yep. I'm out there to hunt. I'm out there to scout, learn, research, and hopefully hang my tag on an elk. Yep. And I I get it if people want to do it the other totally. way. I have no problem with yep. that. And I have, I'll admit that when I didn't hunt as many days, I used to... Really get into the the whole other part of it.
1: And I'll admit that when I go, you know, if we're taking an elk to the butcher or something, we drive by a camp at 10 o'clock and the window's down and I smell bacon and they're sitting around (laughs) camp cooking up this big breakfast, I'm jealous a little bit that we don't do that. But again, once we fill our tags, I always, you know, I the options are open to have a campfire and cook bacon. So. Yeah. You know,
0: we've asked people or people have asked us to do this. We've never done it. And we always say we're going to is, would you just take your camera and walk around to your camp and show everything? Yeah. We, we did it in the wind river range in Wyoming last year for one little thing, because it was snowing like crazy. Yep. I mean, we had two nights where we got over 10 inches of snow <laughs> and we're in these Hilleberg tents and, I'm sure uh, one of the camera guys is like, I bet you people are wondering how you're staying dry in there. Yeah. Like, okay, let's show them. So we did that. But I think it would be kind of cool to walk through and say, all right, here's what's in here. And this is why it's here. And this is why something you might think isn't in here. I don't need it. Blah, 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 blah. So, and all of that gets back to, or, or is a part of the function of where I'm going to choose to set up my camp, whether it's a backpack hunt or whether it's a base camp hunt. Yep. So. Awesome. How, can, how could we talk for an hour about camp? Oh, we gave him our word and now we're over an hour. Hmm.
1: What's the next topic? Whew. We could go a lot of different directions. we go back to calling elk. We could go to uh-huh. hunting in grizzly country, not just camping, but, you know, the yeah. effects of predators. Uh-huh. I would love to uh, get a biologist on and talk to him about, you know, we talk about finding feed sources in e-scouting yeah. and maybe talk about the different feed sources in different areas, different habitats. You know, we've got the Rocky Mountains up here in Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, a lot of the feed sources are the same, but you get to Utah, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, they're different. Way and different. So maybe, you know, finding regional biologists to come on and talk about that and maybe even the fact fe- you know, rut and how... There's a lot of directions we could go there.
0: we have to do a podcast pretty soon about the the rut being delayed. (laughs)
1: Or early. Yeah.
0: Ruts over on the 5th of September. It's over. Yeah, because of snow or it's too hot for them to rut or moon phase. I bet you we did a podcast on moon phases. We'd get a thousand comments one way or the other. Yeah. No matter what we said we'd have people who had a yep. different...
1: It doesn't affect it. It's
0: 100% effect. <laughs> yeah, it didn't. So, But did you write down the Sitka question of the week? I did not. You did not? No. So when I'm sitting here, I'm going to have to make one up. Uh-oh. Really? Well, or, I know I
1: have, there are a lot of questions we well, can come up with. I'm
0: looking at my Bugle magazine and we got to do our access elk
1: okay. piece so, for the elk foundation. So we could tie in something you just talked about and that's moon phase mm-hmm. and what actually triggers the estrus... Cycle of a cow elk,
0: mm-hmm. the, the so, photo
1: period, yeah. So, okay. the, the uh sitka question of the episode uh uh-huh. is is moon phase important for the estrus cycle? And should I hunt during a full moon? Well, those are two different questions, but they're tied together, right? Kind of. Can we answer two questions on give them like th- a double dose?
0: Well, we probably can. I mean. So I answered this last night on my Elk Talk Live that I do on Facebook and live stream and Instagram. A person asked, you know, or they commented that last year in Colorado, the elk rut was way, way late because of, I can't remember if they said heat or full moon.
1: Both of them hit at the same time last
0: year. Yeah, they did. Um, And so I went into this explanation that really the timing of the rut is a photo period effect of how long the days are or how short the days are, whichever way you want to look at it. And that if you think about the gestation period of an elk, they have to drop that calf late May, early June because that is that big pulse of early summer green up yep. that the cows need for lactating. That It's, it's not by accident. So <laughs> if the weather was screwy and or let's say, oh, the rut was early this year. They they rutted in August.
1: Yeah, we got there on the 15th and it was over. The bulls were by themselves. And
0: Yeah, well, that means they would drop their calves in late April or early May. Yep. Well, guess what? It doesn't really happen. happen. It, it's not going to be there. Or they say, you know, because of that full moon followed by it was really hot, they didn't rut until October 10th this year. Yep. Yeah, there might have been a cow that got missed. But the big pulse, the big spike they would all be born on the 4th of July. Yep. They, they'd miss that big wave of green up. And so
1: people, it, it's what we observe that. So we're we talking forming. about two different things, maybe the rut intensity mm-hmm. or the breeding of mm-hmm. the cows. Exactly. That. So what we, the the rut is
0: still happening at the same time, but how it affects us when we're hunting, especially at daytime. Yep. And what they're allowed to do at night and what temperature forces them to do at night versus during the day has a huge impact on our hunting, but it is not changing the, the breeding cycle. Yeah. Yep. It just, hey. <laughs> if it does, we're going to lose our elk populations yeah. because all the calves are going to be born either too early or too late. And I, I know some people will argue with me about that <laughs> and, and that's fine. But, no,
1: we can get into a lot more detail on that. I think, yeah. you know, just talking about the fall equinox and the daylight hours associated right. with that and that triggering the estrous cycle and how heat and full moon and different things affect the intensity of the rut or the timing of what we perceive as the peak rut. Mm-hmm you know, bulls might be very vocal on the 1st of September. That doesn't mean they're breeding cows right then. Right. Or they might be silent on the 21st of September. That doesn't mean they aren't breeding cows exactly. right then. So, <laughs> Yeah,
0: one of the people we
1: should have on this podcast,
0: Dr. Larry Irwin, he's, he's, he's not a medical doctor, but a PhD, University of Wyoming, ran one of their big wildlife management programs there for a long time. He sits on the board of the Elk Foundation. And he, when I've got a question like this kind of stuff, I call Larry, and he's he's really done a lot of research on how the changing weather patterns, long-term drought, and other stuff, and the fact that the snow might melt the the green the, they call it he calls it the green line. How in the spring there's like this snow melt and yeah. it's green just below the snow line. That used to be this really slow period, so the elk went from winter range and they spent a lot of time on the transition ranges while the snow was melting well now or however many years we've had some a really fast green up really fast snow melt and so the elk go from winter range they blow right through the transition range and now they're spending way more of their time on the summer range and they're missing that really really lush great part of the transition yeah. range and it's causing them to In some instances, the research, it looks like the cows are not recovering as quickly, which does in some some instances cause them to not make the first cycle that they normally would. So they end up coming into cycle a little bit later. And if more and more of them do that, the calves then are born instead of this big pulse of a 10-day drop of all these calves the calves are starting to be dropped over a 3-week period and the effects of predation are great way way
1: greater on those calves oh yeah because they're able to pick them off and eat on they have a calendar for a picnic there they, the predators it, exactly
0: do. they can only eat so many in a big 10-day sp- spike yeah. but you spread that pulse out over 3 weeks Well,
1: um, this black bear, he ate a calf every day.
0: Well, Well, instead of eating 10 of them, he ate
1: 21 (laughs) of them. Yep. And I have theories about that green up, you know, the green line Mm -hmm. and the elk blowing right through that. You know, there's a lot of effects out there with increased predation during that time of the year that pushes them through that into their summer range where there's a lot more safety uh, as well as human presence. There's a lot more human presence, whether it's shed hunting or camping, hiking, that are affecting winter range of elk and, and that green line range of elk. And yeah. so that'd be great to get yeah, him he, on. And
0: his, he just, I I feel like I'm a sponge when I'm talking to him, <laughs> him because I'm just soaking this up. He's talking about, you know, we've not done any habitat changes, no canopy changes in this transition range. It's now nothing but a big monoculture of trees. There's been no logging, no controlled burn, no fire, no anything. Guess what? Even if we didn't have this quick green up, the elk are blowing through that because there's no food left in there. So he goes through all these things and he can connect them, not him. It's not his opinion. This is study and research that has been done that connects this to the overall health of these herds. And that's so which affects where you're gonna find them in the fall. Uh, Exactly. And how many you're gonna find in the fall. So but we've answered the sitka question in the week. Here is the Elk Foundation Access Elk Country Project. It is in the Wyoming range uh, in uh, Wyoming. Imagine that, right? (laughs) Um, Bridger Teton National Forest. Uh, There was a road that washed out and no one got around to fixing it. And so the Elk Foundation, uh, they partnered with Wyoming Game and Fish uh, with the Forest Service and they came up with the money to fix where this road had been washed out. And uh, in the process, it reestablished access to 9,600 acres of elk country for just
1: fixing a road.
0: <laughs> because right now the agencies and, don't have And I was going to the say, they do
1: somebody that could come up with the revenue and the finances to put towards that project.
0: Right. And the, the largest partner the Elk Foundation has is the Forest Service. Um, but as a Forest Service budget get cut, they keep looking to nonprofits like the Elk Foundation yep. to state game agencies. They want to do projects, but they don't have money. So that's an important role that the Elk Foundation can play because uh, the Elk Foundation, usually every dollar they get gets leveraged to anywhere from a three to five factor. So your $100 donation to the Elk Foundation, they can leverage that to three, four, 500 and Through like, their partnerships through with... For service, other crops, oh, yeah, yep. others. So this one, I don't know if I should tell everybody where it's at because I think it's in one of those general, don't you have a general Wyoming tag this year? That's the rumor. That's the rumor. So
1: um, if you go to <coughs> drainage. Uh, wow, it's that specific in there. It gets right down to the creek here. See, another benefit of being a member is you get the magazine, it tells you what creek drainage you now have access to. It is called Pass Creek. <gasps>
0: Sorry, Corey, you're going to have to change your plan. I know you were going hunting. First, yep. it was
1: Blueberry Ridge. You were at least making things up. Now, you're telling that, people that specific.
0: Pass Creek. If you are a member of the Elk Foundation,
1: you'd get your Bugle magazine and you'd read about that. But you didn't need to because you listened to Elk Talk podcast, and Randy just right. told you where I hunt. Yeah. So, where, you no, know, I'm kidding. You know That's what? Last what we time said.
0: we forgot to tell them they can find the podcast on Instagram. That's right. You're the guy in charge of the Instagram account. I don't
1: even know how Instagram works. Well, it's, you just. Type in, I think, our username and password, and then you can get in there and see how many people are following us. Okay, how many are following us? I don't, I don't know. I, I lost my. I've phone. got it here, but we could use some more following us there, and that's also a good way for people to be able to send in, you know, maybe recommendations for topics. See, I lost, to you, I, I you I lost, lost your my phone. phone.
0: It's, it's not wow. part of, It's not attached. We have
1: almost two thousand people following us. What? Yeah, and yeah. they. They have wasted a lot of time, aren't they? Well, we haven't wasted too well. much of their time. So we've only made four posts there. Really? Huh. Yeah. We probably need to pay a little more attention to that. And yeah. Follow some of these uh, messages. Oh, so, we'll look at all these messages. I know. I don't know how to answer them. I, I get these
0: notifications. It says so-and-so wants to send you a message. <laughs> I don't do Facebook message and I don't do
1: Instagram message, so. All right. So if you have sent us a message on Instagram, we apologize. We will... Get to these, because there are quite a few here I'm seeing. But follow us and send us messages on Instagram, and we'll do a better job. At Elk Talk Podcast. That's right. Or the website, elktalkpodcast.com. You can send us an email message, and we do get those ones. They are delivered to mm. our email inbox. And right. being technologically oh. slow, and we get that. And for those who aren't downloading this,
0: they are watching it on YouTube. I think between our two YouTube channels, we had almost 10,000 views of the first episode. Yeah, in the first week. That's crazy. Yeah, it's awesome. So if you're watching it on YouTube, leave your comments down below in the (laughs) comment section,
1: and we'll get to those also. Yep. So, And we'll, again, this is all new, so we're getting into our rhythm of answering messages and emails and comments, so bear with us, we're going to get better. Okay. Can't promise the content on the podcast is going to get better, but we will get better at answering Uh, questions. You know, I saw some headlights pull up out there. Did you? That's your wife? Probably. We're We're, we're
0: 20 minutes over. Oh my goodness. We
1: gave them our word. Our word is our bond. We even said that and now
0: we've kept them for longer than an hour. All right. We better go. Okay. We're not going to tell them what the next episode is. It's a surprise. Surprise episode. Okay. Surprise episode number five. Yeah. Because I'm heading down to DQ tomorrow. Oh, yeah. wow.
1: Yeah. So we might be live with a you, you cooler full of Dilly bars. You think i going to
0: the bars. Total Archery Challenge with all you Mountain Ops guys having your <laughs> your shakes and your And your I'm goodies. on my
1: non-dairy, non-sugar diet, and you're going to sit there with a Dilly bar and I'll eat, force me to eat I'll, one. I'll eat yours. I might make an exception. All right. Thanks, folks. Appreciate Thanks so much. Appreciate
0: you following along. Tune in again next time. Yep.